Good morning, church. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and put your finger over there in Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to be at today. Before we get ready to dive in the Word, I want to uh, tell you guys one more time before we get to the event about our Trunk or Treat big outreach event that's going to be next uh, this coming Saturday. We'd love for you guys to all be a part of that. Uh, we're still kind of at that place where we could use a few more trunks. So if you're here and you're like, man, I'd love to do that. Some of you already have really scary trunks as it is. And you might have to actually clean it out, okay? So this could be a really good thing both for your vehicle's maintenance and safety and you know, us being able to reach people with the gospel. Again, the reason we're doing an event like this is because we want people to come in and meet Jesus. And this gives us a great opportunity to be able to do that. So we'd love for you to come be a part of this. Great opportunity to be able to invite your neighbors and friends in. Uh, if you want to be a part of a team full of people that I've kind of assembled to be able to go and reach out and talk to those people and hand out um, information about MCC, we'd love for you to be a part of that as well. So if you're like, hey man, I, I'm just now hearing about this. I'd love to volunteer. Uh, we would love all your help. The way you can do that is either take a picture of that. I think your phone is probably good enough to get up there. If you can't do that with the QR code, you can just text TRUNK to 770-450-1555 and go about it that way. All right, let's dive into the word. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 8 and go down to about verse 16. So if you got a Bible, we're going to dive in here. This is the word of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has a foundation, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many of the stars in the heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to this moment in time, that we can get into your word, allow these truths, even though they were, they were written down years and years ago, they are still so true for our lives now. Help us to know that in the midst of what we're reading, we're seeing a giant story of which we are now a part, the story of the people of God, a story that began at the beginning and will end at your return on into eternity, a never-ending story. Father, I pray that by faith, we see our part, we see our place, and we see, most importantly, what you have done for us. I know today, gathered in this room, there's all sorts of people looking for all sorts of things. Most importantly, Jesus, I pray they find you. I pray for even the most seasoned of saint in the room, that they're able to take steps deeper into their relationship and their walk with you. Father, I pray for the person who is searching for answers. You would in some way, shape, or form give them the answer that they're looking for. 
through your word today. Father, be in my words. If I do not speak what you wanted me to say, if I do not preach the gospel, I have not said anything of significance. And Father, I pray that your word, when preached, would be living, active. That it would cut and divide what it needs to. That it would perform surgery on hearts that are infected with the sin of this world. That it would open blind eyes. That it would cause deaf ears to hear. And that even resurrecting power would happen today as people turn from the death and enter into the life that can only be found in you. All this can only happen if it is your will. And we pray it would be in your name. Amen. So where we're at, a little bit of recap, we're in this book of Hebrews. And this book was written to a group of people who were now coming out of a religion that was just kind of works-based. I do these things and God does good things for me. And now they're understanding that all the, the good that could ever be done was done by Jesus. And they're putting their faith in Jesus as the author, perfecter, and the finisher of their faith. And what they're having to understand is if we're going to continue on in this relationship with Jesus, we are going to be confronted with this battle between facing conflict and remaining comfortable. So they're entering into a faith that is going to be tested, a faith that is going to be one where their perseverance is going to be put on the line. They're entering into what, if you are a person of faith, you have already entered into. A life that says, I do believe Jesus is who he says he is. But at the same time, you are met with external conflict that sometimes can make you either shrink back from that faith, dial down that faith, not move as fast or as strong in the forwardness of that faith. And what he's telling these people to do is to preserve their souls by not shrinking back. He is telling them, walk by faith, step by step. He's telling them over and over and over again the reasons why. Now what he does in chapter 11 is he begins to explain to them how. When he explains to them what does it look like to live a life by faith, he actually goes and uses the Old Testament examples of people they would have realized and recognized, and he's helping them see Jesus in those Old Testament examples and helping them leverage off of what they did by faith so that they can live life by faith. Now, last week, we dug into three characters. We talked about this guy named Abel, we talked about a guy named Enoch, and we talked about a guy named Noah. Today, we're going to learn about what heroic faith looks like for a man and woman of God named Abraham and Sarah. Let's look at their story. Hebrews eleven eight is where we'll begin. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So right there, right off the bat, we see what by faith, heroic faith, does. And today, again, this is kind of kind of be how we navigate through chapter 11. Chapter 11 is very practical. We spent chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 going really deep. And now what we're trying to do in chapter 11 is do what the author is doing and go very practical. What can I learn about how I live from their faith? So today what we're going to navigate through is what heroic faith does. And the first thing we see right off the bat is heroic faith obeys. Abraham gets this message from God and he just simply cut and dry, point blank period, obeys. Now, we can see that and just go, okay, cool. Bible characters, that's just what they do. They just obey. They just do those things. Well, let's make sure we understand at a deeper level what was going on in Abraham's life and how significant his obedience actually is. First thing you got to understand about this Old Testament character, Abraham, 
Sometimes we can think about this guy and think he was just holy from day one. He was just righteous and, and undefiled. He just loved God from the very beginning. But the Bible actually says that's not true. If you go back to Joshua chapter 24, verse 12, don't have time to go and show y'all there. Joshua 24, 12, he actually writes and explains that when God shows up and meets Abraham, Abraham and his family, his father, this is all what they were a part of, they were polytheistic, which means they worshiped a multitude of gods. He is pagan. He does not acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God at this time. There's a chance that Noah acknowledged that there was this God of this guy named Noah who made this big boat. But at most, God, Yahweh, as they referred to him in the Hebrew scripture, was just one among a multitude of other gods. A lot of times the way they would worship these gods is they created these little figurines and they would carry these around or they would have them at their house and they would kind of be decorations at their house that they would basically hold or talk to or kind of set up in their house to remind them to pray to a certain set of gods based off of what they needed in their life. Do we need rain? Well, we'll pray to that one. Do we need crops? We'll pray to that one. Do we need a harvest? Do we need fertility? We'll pray to that one. They would do all these things, pray to all these gods, hoping that they would get these things. And this is who Abraham is, which reminds us in this story. A by-faith life is first and foremost a by-faith life. The reason that Abraham gets chosen is because not he, was, he wasn't just out there crushing it for God. He wasn't out handing out tracts in the desert. He was a guy who was worshiping false gods and God shows up right on his doorstep, interrupts his regularly scheduled program and says, listen, big fella, I've got a plan for you, which should cause some of you in this room to go, all right, God is not waiting on me to worship him before he gives me a big plan. God is not waiting on me. God is actually the initiator of faith and faith in and of itself is a gift to us. I love that about Abraham. Another thing we see about Abraham is that his family goal was actually originally to go where God calls him to. Remember in the story, it says God shows up to me and says, hey, I got a plan for you. I'm gonna call you out of this land that you live in right now, which currently at that time was a place called Ur. Can y'all just say Ur together? Ur, with a U-R, Ur. He lived in Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans to be more specific. That wasn't his original homeland though. His original homeland where his dad brought his family originally from was a place called Haran. He had already traveled from Haran to Ur. Now here's what's significant. You can find this, you go back to Genesis 11, around there is Abraham's story. In 11.39, what it tells us is that Abraham's father had actually intended to take the family from where he lived in Haran to what would become known as the promised land, this place of Canaan. And if you're wondering, like, well, is that like going from McDonough to Hampton or is that like moving to Noonan? Not at all. That's a 7,500 mile journey across the desert. Now, I don't know, I mean, your dad may have had some crazy ideas when you were a kid, but he probably didn't come in the house and go, you know what, guys, we're gonna move 7,500 miles away. You know how we're gonna get there? Camel, let's go. You know, they talk about the Oregon Trail all over again. Like this is, this was Abraham's life. Now what happens is his dad kind of tells the family, hey, our intention is to get to this place called Canaan, this 7,500 mile journey. And what the Bible tells us in 1139 is that Abraham's father settled. He had this thing that he had told the family he was going to do, but he did not make through. He, he stopped in this place called Ur. Now, I don't know about you or whatever kind of crazy stuff your family's done, 
But this would be like me coming to my kids, and we live in Georgia now, and going to them, hey, we're going to go to Patagonia, Chile. That's our new homeland. All right, if you're not unfamiliar with Patagonia, Chile is, just go to Central America, and then keep going down, and then just keep going down, all the way to Chile, and then go all the way down, and then go down to the very bottom of Chile. You're at the very tip of South America, and that's Patagonia, Chile. Now, it's amazing there. There's, there's mountains and rivers. There's pumas. They, they just name cougars different names down there. There's, this is a puma. All right, there's alpaca, the ether puma. Uh, I mean, no, that's, that'd be bad. The other way around. The puma, eat the alpaca, trout in the streams, beautiful place. I want you, I'm, the reason I'm telling you this is because this is some of the things that had been on Abraham's mind and heart growing up in his father's household. Remember, you don't spend a vast majority of your childhood and even potentially adult life traveling as far as they traveled as nomadic people across this wilderness treacherous area without doing it, knowing we're going somewhere. Dad's got this thing in mind. You know, when the family starts whining and complaining, you know, picture Abraham's dad just going like, guys, when we get to Canaan though, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be so good when we get there. And I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, Abraham's father chose not to go all the way. He stopped in the land of Ur. And right there in the land of Ur, this man, now full-grown man, who had dreams as a younger man of making it to this place, gets an unscheduled visit from the one true God. He shows up to him. And the reason I think this is significant is because it had to have been God to show up and go, you remember where you dreamed of getting? I am the one true God. I am going to get you where you wanted to go. I'm going to take you from Ur of the Chaldeans, the place your dad settled. I'm going to take you further than the place your dad settled for. I'm going to take you to the promised land. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you and you will bless me. If anybody curses you, I will curse them. And I'm going to give you descendants as far as the eyes can see, more numerable than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. This is the promise he gives to Abraham. And I love this. If you actually look at the way the, the Greek is written right there in the book of Hebrews, the word obeyed is, is a present active tense. It's as if to say, Abraham heard this and obeyed. It's all kind of in the same thing. It's like Abraham hears God get like halfway into the sentence and it was as if he was waiting on some God to show up and say, go to Canaan. He was ready. It's like his bags were packed, instant obedience, which I'll just camp out and make a point here in regards to us following God. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And, and everybody in the room, you can, as a grown-up, go, no, uh, like that's not real. But look, all of us who are parents, you hold your kids to that standard. Last night, I tell the boys, hey, boys, time for bed. Go brush your teeth. No movement. Now, listen, my oldest, he's like, well, I'm going no, you're not. <laughs> you have not moved off this couch. I don't care that you think you're going, that you plan on going. I need you to go now. If you don't go now, that's disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And there's some people in this room, I, I, I know this right now. Some of you, God has told you to do something. And you have labeled your disobedience to God falsely. You have called it, God, I'm just getting prepared. I want you to understand something. In God's kingdom, he does not see you getting prepared. He sees you being disobedient. The same way you would see your kids. If you said, hey, go upstairs and get your shoes on and get ready for school. If they just said, sat there 
and continued to do whatever they were doing, you're not going, oh, look at my obedient child. They're just getting prepared. Now, even at the table, your kid could be going, all right, what, what, what shirt do I want to wear today? Okay, well, what, am I, what are they going to think about me if I wear that shirt? Okay, well, what shoes? I'm going to wear those shoes. All right, cool. And I'm going I'm to try something different with my hair today. You know, I'm going to do these things. Now, your kid's sitting there, and in their mind, they're getting prepared. But what do, you, what do you see as a parent looking at your child? All you see is disobedience. You have not moved. You have not done anything. But we get down here because we have these nice, logical brains that can think stuff. We rationalize ourselves out of what God's actually called us into. And while we're talking about disobedience, let's just talk about the human condition. One of the worst things, <laughs> sounds weird to say, one of the worst things about going to church, the reason why some people don't, because the more you show up here, the more you get an idea of how you fall short, right? Which I can understand why you don't want to show up. If all you get is just law, 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 do this, do this, do this, and this is what makes you a good Christian, I could understand y'all not showing up. Because you just get beat up when you walk in. You just get, and some of you grew up in this church. You, you, you show up, you just hear all the things that you're not doing, and you walk out, and you just feel like a pile of worms. And you're like, this is terrible. I don't want to do that again. Why don't you understand, in regards to our disobedience. Many times we mislabel why we're disobedient to the things that God's called us to do. We do things wrong or we, we have a habit in our life that we just can't kick, whether it's gossip, whether it's something that has to do with lust, whether it's overspending, overeating. We have these vices in our life, these things where we know we're disobedient to God. We're, and, and even if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's not even that you, you have these things too. They're things that you're disobedient even to what you want to do. You're like, I, I just not, I'm not doing the thing I want to do. Regardless, when we are disobedient, when we are not doing what we know God's called us to do, many times we mislabel those things. We say, ah, oh, if my parents had loved me better or different, if I had grown up in an environment with more care, more attention, more approval from my parents, I wouldn't be struggling with this thing the way I am now. We can take it a step further. We can go back. If I, there's, there's something wrong in me, there's a chemical imbalance or there's too much testosterone or there's too much whatever or, or something is causing me to have a precondition to do this. We can say if, if I had been dealt a better hand, there's something that somebody did to me and sometimes we can look for reasons to play the victim card and let that be an excuse for our disobedience. And what I wanna to try to do today is make a connection that maybe we haven't made. Sometimes I think Satan really wants to keep us from making this connection. And it's this, a lack of obedience is always connected to a lack of faith, always. And this is usually the last place we go looking for the real reasons why we're having trouble obeying God in a certain area of our life. It's not because you don't have a great plan. It's not because you have a preconceived condition that you just think is hindering you from this or people think you're weird. It's not all of those things. If you're having trouble being obedient to God, one of the main reasons is you don't trust him. You don't have faith. Our faith is what leads to our obedience. And again, let's stick to the whole kids thing. Some of y'all have been here. Where you see, and I know y'all parent great, nobody does this in this room. But you've been there at a family gathering or maybe even at church or something like that. And you've seen the parent with their kid. You see the kid start acting up and you're like, well, if that was my kid, I would have already stepped in there. And you're like, you know how you should parent them. <clears throat> now, some of you go and tell them and uh, bless your heart. <laughs> uh, good luck with that. Somehow that doesn't go good. But you see them and then you hear the parent say something like this. If you do this again, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's always weird. I, I, my brain gets in weird places. Um, there's this thing that's happening a lot now with my generation and how we parent kids. We take them 
we, they get in trouble and we go, if you do that again, we're going to go to the bathroom, which is just a weird thing to hear out loud. It's like, what do y'all do? Like, what's going on? Like, this makes, I don't know. Anyway, my mind goes all sorts of different places. I hear that. But we were trying to go to a private place to talk about this. Most of y'all grew up in homes where the kid was doing something crazy. And it's like, I don't care who sees. I'm about to whoop you butt in the aisle. We're in the cereal aisle at Kroger. Let's go. Like, that's the house I grew up in, you know? But you hear these things happen. The parent says the thing, gives the threat. If you do this again, you're going to timeout. If you do this again, I'm leaving you at Kroger. If you do this again, something bad is going to happen. You're not going to back to, you're not going to do that thing again. Now, I like being in these environments and being able to see those things. And then part of me, and this is bad, I just kind of want the kid to do it again. I'm like, all right, all right. I want to see if they're going to keep their word, you know? Leave them at Kroger. I want to see that. See how that goes. You know, or, or, or put them in timeout. Give them a little p- 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 on the booty. You know, whatever, whatever it takes. I, I, you see it. And most of us in the room, we know what's going to happen. The kid does the thing again. And what does a parent do? Nothing. Except give the same old threat one more time. Now listen, and parents, maybe this is an eye-opener for you. You're like, why don't my kids listen to me? Here's the reason they don't listen to you. Because they don't trust you. This is why trust is a bedrock foundation of every relationship. It's, it's, it's really not even love. It's trust. If my kids don't trust me, that I'm going to follow through with my word, why would they obey me? They have no reason to obey me because they don't believe that there's any consequence for their stupid actions. And, and the, the really bad thing is we're raising in generations of this. Where, and, and, and everybody else is, is the fault. This is, this is not good for us. And so my hope is for all of us that we understand our God is a father. One who loves us, wants to provide for us, wants to protect us even from ourselves sometimes. And here's what you can trust. He will keep his word. Our God is not after. Now, for those of you who are getting this idea of God just giving you threats and you disobey this, I'm gonna punish you. Here's what you need to understand when it comes to punishment. When you sin and you face some negative repercussions, that's just consequences. That is not punishment. Here's what you need to understand about your sin. The punishment for your sin was upon Jesus. The punishment for your sin was upon the Son of God, the holy, righteous, perfect Son of God. And he took all of that punishment so that now you could see that and live in the grace that is behold when we see what was paid for our mistakes. And we put faith that Every wrong thing I've ever done was paid for by the son. And now when I see that and savor that, I can live this life of instant obedience because I trust my God to help me navigate through these things. Let's keep going. There's more things that we see by faith in here. Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Second thing we see that heroic faith does is it gets going without fully knowing. It gets going without fully knowing. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going. God's called me. I'm moving. And listen, as much as I want all of us to have all the answers to life, I'm so glad that God doesn't give us all the answers. How many of you know this? If God gave us all the answers about how he was going to do all those things, you know what we would do? We would mess it up. We would completely ruin. If God gave us all the X's and O's, details and all those things, we would either be so afraid that we ran from it or we would be so overconfident that we tried to get in there and we completely ruined his plan. A couple of weeks ago, 
when we started this whole journey about what faith is, we were leaning into Hebrews 11.1, 1, where it talks about faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And we talked about how discontentment is a foundational aspect to our faith, which I know in, as Christian churches, we're, we're supposed to be content. We're supposed to love all the things about our life. But here's what I need you to understand. Discontentment is an essential aspect to our faith. That's why it's the assurance of things hoped for. I'm not hoping for a better marriage if my marriage is perfect right now. The reason you hope for a better marriage is because things are kind of on the rocks right now. I'm not hoping for financial security and stability if I'm already balling out of control. I got more money than I know what to do with. The reason I'm hoping for financial security and blessing is because right now we're on the struggle. It's, it's rough. We don't know where the next meal is coming from. You hope because you're discontent with your current reality. So part A of a sincere faith is discontentment with the way things actually are, which anybody in the room feel kind of discontent with things right now? Good. You have one of the key ingredients for heroic faith. In this passage, what we see is you actually get one of the second essential ingredients to heroic faith, which is ignorance. All right. Now, some of you in this room, you're like, great. You just told me I have everything I need to be heroic faith if I am discontent and ignorant. <laughs> Now, again, I know none of us want to define our lives. I am so discontent and dumb. That's just me, you know? Like, now, some of you are like, that's my husband. Um, <laughs> he is discontent and he is so ignorant, you know? But hear me. These are essential elements to faith. Now, let's get below the surface a little bit on them. I'm discontent with the way things are. And if you're like me, you feel that, and there's something in you that goes, I want to do something about that. But what happens sometimes is we feel this discontentment or this inner angst inside of us. It's like things shouldn't be this way. But then also at the very same time, we don't know what to do about it. We're ignorant. We don't know. Like, well, I, I'm really frustrated about the way things are going right there, but I don't know. I don't know what to do. What we see heroic faith does is, is there's an aspect of ignorance that is embodied in heroic faith where I go, God, you are not going to give me all the details. If you gave me all the details, it would not necessarily be faith. It would just be logic. Here are all the stats and here's all the reason. Now, before you hear me beating up on logic, what God doesn't call us to is faith without reason. Abraham is not following God all faith, no reason. He has a reason, and the reason is God showed up and spoken his word into his life and said, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. I'm calling you out. And so what Abraham is doing is he's going, despite the fact that I don't know where we're going, despite the fact that I don't know all the details, I know you. You have shown up to me. You have revealed yourself to me. And because you've done that, I trust you. And that's gotta be our lives where we go, despite all the details, I know the detail giver. I know the one who's called. Now, as many times as we would want God to just show up and write or say things in our quiet time and put them in the clouds, here's what you need to understand. God has given you and I his promises in here. This is why Satan would love to keep you out of this because this is a place where you don't know the promises of God. And if you don't know the promises of God, you will not know the promiser that God is and you will never put trust and faith in him. And if you don't have trust and faith in him, you'll continue to live a life of disobedience to him and not bear fruit, you'll be woefully disappointed with how things go in your life and continue to live with the inner angst. That's why his word is a solution for our life. This is where we find what he tells us to do. He has a unique word for you, for, you, for me, it's in here. 
I'm praying that you go and you find it and you see it and you seek it out. That's what Abraham was doing. The next thing we see here is that by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. It tells us actually where he goes. He goes to live in this land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. So we see where he goes, but this can be a little bit misleading if you don't know your Bible well in the history of what actually happens. When it says by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, we go, oh great, he made it to Canaan. No, that's about five years later, or I mean 500 years later. He doesn't make it. His kids don't make it. Their kids don't make it. It's not until Joshua and the Israelites march around the city seven times and start blowing their trumpets a long, long, long time after this that they finally actually get the land of Cana. Now, what has happened in Abraham's life is he gets close. And some of you, that's your frustration with God. You're like, I'm so close. I'm right here. I can see it, but I can't seize it. It's like I can almost taste this promise and I've bumped into it. I've been so close so many times, but God hasn't given it to me. And that's really frustrating that I would spend a whole life walking by faith, but maybe never walk in the promise that was given. And that's part of his story. It says they go out and they live in tents. If there's ever anything that's temporary, it's living in a tent. They're essentially homeless, but they've been given this big giant promise to have this heavenly place, this home, this home promised land. And his whole entire group of people, his whole family, it even says his sons, Isaac and Jacob, they are inheritors of this promise, which kind of makes me pause for a second and go, why would God give them a promise to inherit, but not give them the promised land to inherit? What if, What God was really after was increased faith and not just increased acreage. What if God was really after not growing our abundance of stuff, but what if what he was really after was us growing a depth of faith? How hard would it have been for the generations that follow Abraham if they had everything at their fingertips? They were just living in the land of milk and honey. They were millionaires' kids. I think their faith would have been a lot harder. But they lived this nomadic life, wandering around in temporary tents, not having a home, not having a homeland, but believing and trusting. And what Abraham has to do as the patriarch, as the leader of his family, he has to continue to put this visionary faith into his family so that they would trust, that they would have confidence in a God they can't see, leading them to a place they can't see. And they'd have to build this faith. And what I love about this story is you see this begin to be lived out. And God over and over again shows his favor to their family, shows up to Isaac, shows up to Jacob, shows up to Joseph, and works in and throughout this family and weaves this grand giant story that is our books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all the way through to the New Testament because they didn't give up. They trusted that God was writing a big, confusing at times, story with their lives. The passage goes on and it says why. It says, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He goes out because he is looking forward to the city. Now, you can read that city and go, he's talking about Canaan and Galilee. That's where he's talking about. But what he's showing here, 
And the author of Hebrews makes it clear, he's not talking about looking forward to just making it to where he's boots on the ground in Canaan and it's his land. He says he's looking forward to to a city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. This is not a man-made, man-built city with all of the buildings and skyscrapers and things that a man could bring about. He's saying, I'm looking forward to God's city, which is pointing way forward to Abraham having a vision of the new Jerusalem that would be to come, that Jesus would set up and solidify a city that was not built by human hands, but its architect and builder was God. There's significance there in those two words of architect and builder. If you were to go and meet down, meet up and, and, and take your designs, if you had the skills to design a home, and you take your perfect designs for a home, you give it all out, and you go take it, and you give this to a builder, and they go build you that home. How confident in, are you that the builder is going to build exactly the home that you designed? You're not very confident. There's gonna be some things that are just a little bit off, When it says that this city is one that God both architect and both one that God built, it is signifying and showing that the original intent and the execution of the plan are in perfect unison because the same heartbeat is the one who is executing both. And it is not man who designed and it is not man who built. It is God who did both. And that's the city we long for. One that's perfect because it comes from the heart of an untainted, perfect, pure motives of God. What we see here is Abraham is looking forward to this city, which again shows us, I think, the third aspect of heroic faith. It looks forward despite what's in front. He's looking forward to this heavenly city, despite the fact that he is every night going to bed and taking his sandals and shaking out all of the sand because he's living out in the middle of the desert. And where he's likely at, there's this place called Shechem and there's this place called Bethel. And both of them are kind of in the middle of the city, the Canaan area that's right there. They're likely up kind of on the hill. It's almost as if Abraham can look down when the night's setting in and he can see the city and the lights of the place that he's been promised. And he goes to bed one more night going, God, I know you promised this land. And though I can't see it, and though I can't seize it, I pray that this land is in my heart more than it is in my feet. And I'm gonna continue to take step by step, day by day, and follow after you. And that is a hard place of faith to be. When you can can look out there and you can go, there it is, but it's not yours. You can see everybody else in a big, nice, happy marriage and you can go, there it is, it's not mine. We can see other people just financially free and being generous with what they've got. And you can go, there it is. It's not mine. Or you can see people with their kids running around, playing, laughing. And you go, there it is. But it's not mine. And that is a heavy, hard place to be in faith. A faith that can see but can't seize. A faith that has even been given the promise, feels like it has at least, but doesn't see it coming to fruition. What I love about this story is how painfully heartbreaking it is and how much that can give us hope. Because we we look at a story like this and we see someone who's looking uh, forward despite what's in front, but at the same time, 
we see them continue on. In a second, we're gonna see that they even died by faith. The passage goes on, it says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. All this big dream, all this land, all this legacy, all of this lineage that's supposed to come from Abraham, it's really all hinged and contingent on him actually having a son. And it says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age since she considered him, that's God, faithful, who had promise. Next thing we see that heroic faith does is it receives power for the promise. Many times what keeps us from seeing, receiving, savoring the promises of God, even in our own lives, is we get the thing and we think we have to make that thing accomplish in our own power. There's no way that mid-90s Sarah is having a child in and of her own. That is power that has to come from the Holy Spirit. That is power that has to come from God. And what I'm telling you is whatever that thing is that God has called you to do, stop trying to do it on your own. Receive the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Surrender, ask God to do it his way, not your way, and receive the power that comes from him. Another fascinating thing that shows up in this story, talking about the kids being born, it says, therefore from one man and from him as good as dead. (laughs) I love that Abraham gets defined as that here. It's good. We're born descendants, as many of the stars in the heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Uh, raise your hand in this room if you're over 90. Cool. Oh, nope, nobody. That's no, none of us. All right. Good deal. I said this to the, to the later crowd, and I'll say this to this crowd. God is not a God who just goes, look at you young whippersnappers out there in your 30s. You know what you could use? A big, crazy dream. Let me give you this thing, you know? High schoolers and middle schoolers in the room right now, college-age kids, people in your 20s, you got all these crazy dreams about what your life is gonna be like. But for those of you a little bit more aged saints in the room, you get into your 60s and 70s and 80s and you're like, man, I don't, I, I'm, I'm a, a waste of my dreams. There's no, God, God's kind of done, you know, uh, he's past that. Here's what I would say. If God shows up to a guy, and, and look, this isn't like man's words, this is God's word. He was as good as dead. And listen, if, if God's labeling you as that, you are that. <laughs> like he gets out of the tent, it's like any day now. Like it could happen today, tomorrow. It's, he is as good as dead. Here's the truth though. If you're not dead, God's not done. And everybody in this room, you're alive right now. And listen, we, I asked you a second ago, raise your hand if you're over 90, all right? Abraham was over 90 when he got this promise. And if Abraham was over 90 getting promises, there were changing generations, then maybe he could do it with somebody who's 47 or 32 or 68 or 70. One of the worst things that our country does with people in the retirement age, you hit retirement and you have more financial flexibility than any other time in your life. But we wasted on comfort instead of Christ. We hit our 60s and 70s. And many of you enter into a time of life where you have more freedom with your time than any other time. And we leverage it for comfort. I worked hard. I earned this. Well, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And by grace, you should live by faith until you're dead. Don't waste Maybe a time in your life where you have more freedom for the sake of comfort and not for Christ. And if you're younger in this room, hear me on this. 
The time to answer the big dreams and take the big chances is now, where there are less tangibles, where there are less risks, where there are less strings attached. You can go and mine some things and figure out some things. I'm not saying go sow wild oats. I'm going, so, I'm going and saying sow into the kingdom of God. While you see the rest of your friends, go and explore sexually. While you see the rest of your friends, go and explore, okay, what does this lifestyle look like? And let me go figure out this. You in your heart, listen right now, I'm talking to somebody, this is Holy Spirit stuff, hopefully. You see what frat life, college life, the things that you see on social media, and you go, I want to try that out, but deep in your heart, you know, I'll go kind of try that out, but what I'm really gonna do is I'll, I'm gonna come back to church. I'm gonna come back to faith, but I wanna go see that a little bit. You know where you really wanna be. Don't waste those years wandering in the wilderness. Your tomorrow is not a promise. And to the older folks in the room, middle folks in the room, if you're not dead, God is not done. Take every day as a blessing from him. Passage goes on. We see our next thing here. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here's what's happening here. These people, they get this big promise. It's what they're told. It's what they understand. But then what does it say? They all died in faith which is an amazing thing to say about them. And I pray it's said about me and you. We live by faith. And then when it comes to the very end, somebody's standing up preaching your funeral and they say, mama lived by faith and mama died by faith. Dad lived by faith and dad died in faith. He persevered. I want that to be said of you. And what's crazy about this story and what reminds us here is that they leave by faith in the promise, but they never received the place of promise, which should kind of make us ask this question. It's okay to ask these questions when we come into scripture. Well, what's the significance of them inheriting the promise? Because that's what said um, Isaac and Jacob. They, they inherited the promise, but they never inherited the place. Why that? What's the significance of them getting the promise and not getting the place? I don't know all the answers, but part of the reason why I think that is so significant and the why God shows us that is because what God is really after is an increase of faith, not an increase of your acreage. What God is really after is not just dumping out the blessings on you so that you're so satisfied. Again, remember, what is the foundational element of faith? Discontentment. And if God sends him into this land of Cana with land flowing with milk and honey, you know what happens? There's potential for them to get to this place where they become a people who don't need God because they are reaping the reward of everything that God has given them. And friend, that is the biggest threat to your faith in this country, that you would be so safe, so comfortable, so protected, that you would have no reason to need a God because you are so satisfied with the things that God has put around you. And my hope, my, my, my prayer is that we would stay like it says these people were. Ange, uh, exiles, strangers, aliens, sojourners. That's what it talks about here in our last one. 
It says, for people who speak this way, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, he's talking about Ur of the Chaldeans there, they would have just gone back and returned. So when, when Abraham and his family are like, we're homesick, what he's saying here is they're not going, oh, we're homesick and we really want to go back to Ur. No, we no longer, we don't want to Ur. We realize there's something greater. We, we realize there's a heavenly city that God's calling us to. And he, sh- he shows us in the next passage. He says, but as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Now, I would love to just add a little bit on there. God has prepared for them a city. And in the meantime, he is preparing them for that city. That's what he does by faith. What we see here is the fifth element of heroic faith. It desires a heavenly home. Now, as much as I love all four of these other points, everything is contingent on us getting this one. You will not have heroic faith, faith that makes it to the end, faith that locks eyes with Jesus and doesn't let go if you do not desire a heavenly home. That is the key foundational element. That desire for a heavenly home is what allows us and enables us to receive power from the promise because we know we won't get there unless his power takes us there. If we desire a heavenly home, that's the only way we're gonna look forward despite what's in front because we desire this home. When we go out without fully knowing, it's because I know the end GPS coordinates. In its heavenly home, not craziness down here. And because I desire this heavenly home, I will simply obey. I will simply follow because I know the one who is the owner of the home. I know the one whose home it is. And I know, this is the key thing here. I know that down here, right here, what's happening right now is not my home. There's this word that I came across as I was studying this week, and I think it is a word that I would love to add into our vocabulary as Christians as a way we are supposed to begin to live. It's this word dissonance. I believe this is part of how God has wired us to actually live down here in this planet because what God has not called us to do is to be anti-culture. There's some people that buy into that, that, okay, we're people of faith. We're supposed to be anti-culture. And if you play all that out, almost everything in our life finds its end in something that is kind of manipulated, evil, and kind of twisted. And what God is not saying to do is is go be anti-culture. There are some people in our society that have believed that, and they go, and they're what we call um, Amish. (laughs) We're we're anti-culture. Are there the people who live in their own separate commune out in the middle of nowhere? We are anti-culture. We're going to create our own culture, and it's kind of right here. We're anti-culture. Most of you in this room, you're not anti-culture. But we have this danger of not swinging the pendulum all the way to anti-culture, which I don't think we see even in Abraham's life. He's still meeting with people. He's still involved in what's going on in civilian affairs of people that are happening there on planet Earth. He's not anti-culture. His family doesn't go live in tents and just, we're just in our tent. Nobody come to our tent. We're not going to your tent. But what he is and what he lives on is living in counter-culture. Still in the midst of it. But this ragtag group of people that now have faith in the one true God, they live as a counterculture, which means they live in dissonance. Let me define what that word is. It is a lack of harmony or agreement between things. Dissonance, a lack of harmony or agreement between things. If the musicians were back on stage, dissonance is a key word used in music. It just means that you are out of harmony. The band is doing one thing and you're doing a completely different thing. It's where we get the terminology of marching to the beat of a different drum. I'm in dissonance. I'm not going in line with this. This is not my home. I'm not gonna live and try to fit in and try to to placate. I'm not trying to assimilate to the ways of the world. I realize I'm not created for this world. I'm what the Bible calls a 
a stranger, an alien, an exile. I love the word exile. In the Greek, it's translated as this um, parapedemos, parapedemos. And literally what it means is one just passing through. Friend, this is our identity as Christians. We are just ones who are passing through. This earth, this place is not my home. I am not attached to the approval I get from this world. I'm not attached to the resources this world can provide for me. I am living here as if I am just passing through. And so if the key element of heroic faith that we see lived out in the life of Abraham is this desire for a new homeland, a question we've got to ask ourselves is this. What do you desire? What is it that you really desire? Do you, and, and be real, do you desire things that would make this life feel more comfortable and secure here as a home? And if the things are financial security, relationship stuff, what are they? If you're like, I don't know what I really desire. That's a deep question, Pastor Trent. If you want to figure out the answer, ask your spouse. Say, look at my life, and based off the way I've been living for the last three weeks, what does my life show that I desire? Ask a coworker, somebody who's close enough to see what you do. Now, you in your head, you may be, you know, here are my motives, here's what I really desire. Well, your actions show differently sometimes. I know that's the case in my life a lot. That's the distance between what we think we are after and what we want to be after and what our actions actually show that we're after. Another diagnostic question I would ask you is this, are you homesick? You know what I'm talking about. Is there just something in you that goes, there's gotta be more than what's going on down here. If you're like me, man, you've had some of those days where, where you just, you get in the car and you, and you, and you're, you just feel heavy. And you just feel burdened. You see what's going on around the world. You see what's going on even in your own world. You get one more email from a, a teacher or one more you know, notification about some fire you gotta put out. And you're just going, when is this all gonna be over? Not in like a, I'm depressed, I wanna end my life kind of way, but a way that goes, there's gotta be more to this. There's, a, there's an ache and an urge and a longing for some resolve. To, to leave this place with so much tension, so much anger, so much hate, so much disunity, and go to a place where things are resolved. Do you feel homesick? And if you don't, that's a faith problem. That's you getting too comfortable with building a sandcastle kingdom down here. That one day, the great storm is gonna come. Jesus said it and his great, the way he ended the greatest sermon ever was giving this parable between two builders. You know what they were building? Not boats, not playgrounds. You know what they were building? Homes. There's no coincidence here. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, he talks about two builders. One who built his house on sand and one who built his house on the solid foundation that was living and obeying the word of God. And the way he ends the sermon is not the way you teach pastors to end sermons on the big high note of here's all the great things you could do. If you do this, you'll live long and prosper. 
It's kind of like a Star Trek sermon ending. He says, and the way he ends his sermon is he just talks about the person who did the stupid thing and built their stuff on this foundation down here, the sand foundation. I'm just building this nice little house. It's my little way, my little world right here, down here. And it says, and the winds came and the storm raged and the floodwaters beat on that house. And the way he ends his sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, is it fell with a great crash. And friend, if you are living your life for this life, it will end in a great crash. But my hope, my trust, my my prayer all week for you has been that we would become a people who are so much more dissatisfied with the things of this world. The more you grow closer to Christ, the more homesick you'll become the more you find the things of this world abrasive because they are so anti what your Savior is about, the less you're willing to march to their drum and the more you're willing to walk in tune with the Holy Spirit, no matter how crazy it may seem. I love the way our passage ended when it says, God was not ashamed to call them his own and he was preparing a place for them and friend what we have promised from Jesus the nights that he was to be betrayed he told his disciples very plainly my body is getting ready to be broken for you my blood is getting ready to be poured out for you and in this world you're going to have trouble but take heart I've overcome the world and it's actually better for you that I leave this world because where I'm going is to prepare a place for you and they all freak out and they're all nervous they're all losing their minds they're like no we can't leave you Jesus you can't leave us Jesus and what he promises them is that he's going to send the Holy Spirit in their life and the Holy Spirit inside them will be better than Jesus being right beside them because the Holy Spirit is the anchor for our souls. Where is that anchor pulling us? Pulling us to the home we were created to spend eternity in. And I pray that that anchor holds tight to your soul today and you feel the King of Heaven winching you in, pulling you in to the home you were created to be in. As we commune together, we take this broken body of Jesus represented by the bread and this blood of Jesus represented by the juice. I pray you see the meal of your homeland meal that makes us one, the meal that makes us long. I pray that this is just a foretaste of the great meal that is to come as we sit together around the great banquet of heaven's throne. And I pray as you eat this, you would ask Jesus, help me become just a little more homesick today than I was when I walked in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you glorify you now as we meet together around this holy communion table together as a church family speak to us now through your holy spirit as we take moments to silence to just reflect and commune with you and i pray jesus you do make us homesick for our true home the things that really matter give us the faith to take one more step one more day as we seek after that home. Prepare us for it as you prepare it for us. In your name, amen.